Hi, Steve Albrecht from Library 2.0. Great to be with you here in our Library Expert Series. We're here with Dr. Lisa Hussey, who is at Simmons University in Boston. Her book is Library Management 101, A Practical Guide, second edition. And so, Lisa, welcome, and thanks for having our conversation here today. Well, thank you for inviting me. And so when you look at the book that you did, you're in the second edition. And so you and your uh, colleagues, uh, Diane Velasquez, um, um, what did you see in terms of differences between the first and the second edition? What kind of trends were you looking at that 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 you know moved you from the first to the second edition in terms of the content? Well, I, will, I mean, just I will say one thing right off the back, and, and I will say that this this book probably needs to be updated in the next couple of years as well. And part of that is because when you talk about management, it's a people driven profession people driven discipline and people change and what is important to people changes. And these are things we have to think about. And when you think about libraries, which are, despite what people think they are customer service institutions. And so everything we do has to be about how do we best serve our customer? How do we best serve our patrons? How do we best serve our community? And those communities shift all the time and priorities change in that. Um, you know, just to give you an idea, since I got my my master's of library science 25 years ago, and when I first started, databases were DOS based, like you had to do the whole command piece of it. A lot so of floppy disks and a lot of, oh. lot of lot of lot of lot of formatting of disks and whatnot. Exactly, and I've watched in my time, you know, it going from maybe the library will have a computer to how many computers do you have how often do you have to have them open and then to making sure you have spaces for laptops and having wi-fi and how that's just changed i don't want to say change the priorities but maybe changed how you how you uh frame and format the services that you provide how you make decisions about you know how you use your space that is a big thing that has changed like how do you use your space because books will always always be important to libraries but how you deliver those books are going to be very different. And again, at the center of what we do in libraries is information. And it's all about how the best way to deliver that information. And the bigger trend has been, especially in the past, well, let's say, especially since, say, spring 2020, um, how we can deliver things online or electronically or how we can make it very easy for people to pick things up is a big driver of what we do you know, and making it, well, I'd say one of the big things I think that we always have to think about in libraries and how we provide our services is how do we make it as easy as possible, which often means that people don't understand exactly how much we do. That That is a part of, um, you know, it's a part of how we run libraries. It's part of how we run what we do is that people don't necessarily understand what goes into it. That's That's our end goal at the same time. It means we don't necessarily get recognized for the work that we do. And I was going to say, in terms of trends in management in general, and I don't, I see this not just in libraries, but I see this writ large, is you're talking about changing of generations. And I know people hate the terminologies, but realistically, the boomers are finally retiring. No offense to boomers, but I am one, so I'll take your point there. Yeah, no, somebody who's solidly Gen X were the generation that got skipped over. Like we didn't get a chance to go into these leadership positions for the most part. But we have, you know, new generations that have grown up with with always having computers around. Um, these generations that have grown up, unfortunately, with school shootings as a regular things about violence in the workplace actually being 
more common than one might think about. And a lot of this frames of how do you then set up the, the environment to be as safe as possible for who you work with? How do you set it up to understand that, you know, millennials and Gen Z, again, sorry for the labels, people don't always like that, but um, have, I think rightfully so, changed the focus from um, live to work to work to live. And that, you know, that, you know, how do you change your perception and management for that understanding, making sure that that work-life balance becomes so much more important? I guess when I, I looked at my, you know, life and libraries over the span of my years, when I was a kid, you know, the primary thing for libraries in terms of outreach was was adult literacy. You know, uh, people that couldn't read or write very well, there was adult literacy programs and and kids programs. I mean, what I, what I came through, you know, teaching kids to read and exposing kids to great books and and programs and things. And then you just look at the evolution now to where we are now with the library is so much bigger that the the communities it serves, the the specific people inside certain communities that it serves. Some, some I think, uh, some people know that exists and some people don't. Obviously, the people that are getting those services do. But I think, you know, part of the outreach for library management is to say, you know, as we were talking before we came on about there are so many things you can do with your library card that don't involve coming into the facility. There are so many things you can do with your library card that that could be beneficial to your kids that maybe you don't know about or seniors or some other group. You know, I've seen Alcoholics Anonymous chapter meetings at libraries, yeah. uh, legal aid meetings, you know, le legal help for people at libraries. So just uh, give me a sense of how you see that kind of evolution of what the library does in expanding services that maybe people don't know. Well, I'd say one thing that I... Uh maybe a couple of things with this. One of the things is that libraries are one of the last freely public spaces available. You don't have to buy something to come into a library. And so it serves so many people in so many different ways. I mean, you, you know, you talk about the unhoused population. Libraries are a safe place during the day. Libraries are a place where you can go to warm up or cool down. Libraries are a place where you can actually go and have your stuff and, you know, not have to worry about what's going to happen there. That creates attention with, you know, I'd say other patrons who come in. Um, libraries are also often a safe place for for teenagers, right. for you know, for kids of all ages. But I particularly think about teenagers who deal with a lot of, you know, things going on on in the bigger world. And you have fewer services after people get about eleven or twelve. You have fewer, I want to say, social programs really aimed at teens. And libraries still provide that space. And one of the things that I've seen develop again, in my time in libraries, is not just having children's departments, but having teen departments sure. and recognizing that teens are a very different animal. You, you know, what you do for the little kids is not what you do for the teens and, you know, providing space in that sense. Um, one, you know, I mean, other things that I've seen happen, and this is, this is such a positive evolution, but I know that, again, back 25 years ago when I was getting my degree, there was still this sense of this is how we've always done it. And if you know anything about management, you know that is the quickest way to destroy any organization. And there have been some very important shifts. Um, like when I was uh, working on my doctorate in Missouri, the Missouri Library Association and a lot of the public libraries were, it, it didn't just start at that point. And I started, I was in Missouri from 2003 to 2006. Um, it hadn't just started, but it was starting to build, recognizing that they had to start serving Spanish-speaking populations, and not in like Kansas City and St. Louis, but a lot of the rural areas, because that's who was coming in to do a lot of the the factory work, who's coming in to do a lot of the, you know, um, 
the farm work, a lot of the transitory work, and that you had to kind of shift and do an entirely new um, population, have to understand what, how your services were changing. And that was a surprise for a lot of libraries at that time. And, you know, you have places that have always had that. New York City, Boston, Los Angeles, Seattle, you know, Baltimore, Miami. These have always been cities that have had huge immigrant populations. So they've always had those services. But you start getting into other parts of the country where you're realizing that, oh, this is that that's just not a big city thing anymore. And that concerns that, you know, concerns that you had in, like I said, in some of the major systems, these translate to more rural systems these days. And it's it's recognizing that how we've always done it is a great place to start, but we have to then think about how are we doing it to fit who we're serving now? And, you know, I mean, again, the United States population constantly shifting, constantly changing. We constantly have, you know, we have so, you know, so many um, different movements and how, where people go and what they do and what the priorities are. And, you know, again, the other thing too is as we were talking, how are we making sure we're serving the people who are never going to step foot in our library, but are in fact still going to use our services? And how do we make sure that people are aware of that? And this is one of the things that I try to teach in management and I try to stress, but we are not good at marketing ourselves. And that's something we have to work on constantly. We have to be, you know, when people say, do you need a library because you don't need libraries because of Google, you need to have a way to explain that why they're so important. Why Google will bring you back a million resources, but a library will help you find the one you need. And the, yeah, you and I were talking about the, the value of the elevator speech, you know, what, yeah. what library professionals can say to people when they hear that Google question. So, so tell me more about the, the contents of the, of the elevator speech. Well, usually the, I, when somebody will say that to me, I'll smile and say, well, let me ask you, when you search Google, do you feel overwhelmed with the results you get? And to a person, I had everybody say, well, yeah, there's so much. I'm like, do you know how to go through them? Well, I just take the, the first few. How do you know that those are the best ones? Well, I don't, but it's easy. I'm like, you know that if you went to a library, somebody would actually help you figure out that information a little bit better. Somebody could could help you learn how to, to go through that. And I, you know, I talk about, and we have so much information out there. We, you know, we, you get inundated with it. You know, anytime you do a simple Google search, you get 10 pages worth of stuff. And I say, you know, and I tell people like, because we have so much information, libraries are even more important because they're places that can help you hone that. There's people there that can help you figure that out. If you go into a library and get an get a question answered, you're gonna feel more confident about that answer than, well, I think this is okay, but I'm not sure how to look at that website. Um, but it goes further than that. I mean, it's great. It's For me, it's very good to start with the Google question. And, you know, kind of explain that helping work through it. I'm like, but then you start talking about the other services. Like, do you know that we have regular programming for people in the community? Do you know we have people come in and do talks? Do you know that at tax time we have people coming in to help people with their taxes? Um, in major cities, like, and San Francisco started this, but you, you're seeing this now more in, in a lot of the big cities that they have social workers. Right. That are actually trying to help with larger community concerns and issues. Um, I, but I mean, I'll even talk about things like, you know, in the summer that they have programs for kids, you know, that they have gardening programs, you know, that, you know, you try and figure out what to do with the kid for the summer. The library is a great place to, one, find that information too, see what it is that they're offering. 
um, again, I keep referring to Boston Public. Obviously, it's the one that I see, and it's not perfectly perfectly honest. It's not fair to compare Boston Public to anybody else except maybe New York Public Library. But you know, the things that they like the the major library, the the one in Copley Square. There's a radio station in there. You know, and they have regular events. Now that's on a great on a huge scale, but you know, look and see what your local library is doing. It might only be open three days a week, but I'm willing to bet during those three days, there's a story time for the kids. There's an event for seniors in the area. There's, if nothing else, there's a wall of bestsellers or new books that have come in. There's so many things, like I said, it's reading, but there's also things like uh, citizenship corners. You know, the things that public libraries have been highly engaged in is, you know, helping people with questions about citizenship or learning about the United States or the processes that they need to do. Libraries are are often polling places for voting, but they're also places that will help you figure out where to vote or how to register to vote. You know, they are very solidly community organizations and their role is not just providing reading, it's helping people connect to any information that they need. And that includes civic information. Yeah, I mean, you talk about some of the the services. I also think as, as I look at it, there's more political collisions now than I've ever thought of before with libraries and and really in a couple of areas. One, obviously, book content, book protest. But the other one I see in my work is um, having to have library professionals engage with appointed political leaders or elected political leaders who don't understand the exact things that you just talked about, who who have a lot on their plate, but don't see the value to libraries. Obviously, when you look at recessions, what's the first thing to go? Parks. Uh, maintenance, swimming pools, libraries, right? That's the first thing they, they attempt to cut either staffing or buildings or or facilities or maintenance, whatever. So, you know, I've seen so much in terms of these sort of political collisions between library professionals trying to educate political leaders, you know, city boards, county boards, even their own library boards about what they do and how they do it. So how do you see that sort of, you know, if, if book protest is sort of one part of it, but that overall larger sense that, that you know politicians need some education about what what libraries do as well, right? And one of the things, and this is something I teach a lot in my, especially my management class, but in almost any class that I talk about, is the way to do this education is you have to explain why it's important to them, not why it's important to you. You know, you work in libraries. I work in. I mean, I work in libraries. I have a doctorate in. I teach it. I'm obviously passionate about it, and they know that. But that it doesn't matter why it's important to me. Why is it important to them? You know, if you want, you know, politician wants to cut cut the library, I would immediately start finding data about how, you know, how much time, you know, how much time is spent on things like homework help. If you're a school library that's getting cut, and to me, actually, that's more dangerous when the public libraries, school libraries get cut so quickly. You're talking about K through 12? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, uh, sorry. This was my own mistake. Need to talk in the language that people understand. Um, school libraries are K through 12. Public libraries, you know, academic libraries are colleges and universities. Um, but yeah, with school libraries, you have a lot of people who don't have a library until they get to high school. There has been research done. Of course, I can't pull it out of my head right now, but there has been research done both positive and negatively showing ha- the importance of school libraries to things like grades, to things like standardized testing. And if there's one thing that principals and superintendents care about, it's those standardized tests. 
and being able to show, look, when you have the presence of a library and a librarian, the testing is this much higher. Not kids need to read, not those. I mean, of course, that's important. That's what I care about. That's not what a principal and a superintendent care about. They're going to care about, you know, what is that larger outcome? What is that larger impact? What is what can they take to their funders and talk about? And, you know, I mean, again, your your um, your city wants to cut your funding. And, you know, why should we keep you rather than the, the police department? And, you know, one, you don't want to make it an either or. But, you know, the thing to point out is that you're now taking away another place that kids can go to. What are they going to do? You know, I personally, one of the things I would do would, would dig in and look at crime statistics and look at, you know, you know, how things are when, when kids don't have outlets. By the way, I'm not saying kids are evil or kids are automatically, you know, going to be criminal, but I was a teenager. And when I didn't have something to do, I was stupid too. Um, you know, but I mean, it's, it's really under how you, how do you take this and put it in the language that makes sense to them and aligns with their goals and their priorities. And if you want to see a really beautiful case study of how this was handled, well, again, Boston Public Library, sorry, but in 2008, when they were going to start cutting everything and cutting branches, um, the president of Boston Public Library at the time, Amy Ryan, was very public. She, she held forums. She went out and talked to people. And she made it so that the city understood how important the library was to the city. Not how important it was to the people who worked there, but how important it was to the city. New York Public has done the same thing. Um, I think when Bloomberg was mayor, he tried to cut it and the city pushed back hard. You know, people who were influential in terms of voting pushed back hard. And this is, the, these are the things that you need to do. Sometimes you have to find your, your advocates, which again, New York Public has done, Boston Public has done, I've seen it done in other cities as well. You have to have the people who will get up and speak for you, but you also have to tie it to the larger goals. What is the most important thing, you know, for your city? What is the most important thing for your university? What is the most important thing for your school? How does the library contribute to that? When you were uh, writing your book uh, with Diane Velasquez, uh, Library Management 101, A Practical Guide, uh, Roman and Littlefield book, uh, when you looked at that, you know, you have a collection of, of subject matter experts in there and, it, you know, you, you cover a lot in the book in terms of the depth of of subjects. It's not just about management. There, there's a lot, a lot there, a lot of meat on the hoof. And it sounds like one of your challenges or one of your opportunities in, as a as an instructor, you know, for library professionals is kind of political savvy. Um, how, how do you negotiate the book content, protest, First Amendment people, the the challenges to things, but also... Can you kind of talk about some of the other things that library, especially leaders, look at? How do you manage the budgets and how do you get facility improvements and how do you work on a huge project like a capital improvements or a new building or, you know, adding new branches, uh, you know, um, staffing issues, how you how you find the best people and retain them? To, I, I know those are things that are covered in your book. Just kind of give me a sense of how you have addressed those things and especially the work you're doing now. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I mean, it, like in terms of budgeting. Um, and unfortunately, I literally spent half a class on it. But one of the things I kind of always stress um, is that one, if you, as soon as you have these responsibilities, sit down with somebody and go through the budget line by line and know what every every piece of it is. 
Um, don't assume that you're always going to get your full budget either. You know, be prepared for those kinds of things. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing is too, is like understand where the money is coming from, who, it, who where the money is coming from and what that means about how you have to, again, going back to talk about why this money is important. Why is this important? You know, in terms of like, you need a new building. Why is that important? Why is not, why is that important to the library? Why is that important to the person you're going to ask? Why is it, you know, why, why should your community care about this enough to vote for a bond measure? You know, and a lot of this is, you know, we want to be able to expand our services and this is how it would benefit you. We have heard from the community that we, you know, we don't have enough resources for children or we don't have enough resources for the adults. And this is one of the ways in which we're trying to do that. Um, in terms well, the of the facility was built in 1956 and we got yeah. plumbing issues and, and bugs and the, you know, the infrastructure is falling over. And this is not a, you know, it's a historically protected building, which means that sometimes we can't do a lot of changes to the outside or the inside. So, I mean, I, you know, I think, especially if you look at the East coast, you know, I, I came from California where buildings are old and they're, you know, 40 years old and, <laughs> and you look at how challenging those capital improvement, the, the, Bond measures, as you talked about, those are those are long term, you know, multi year projects, and I, I'm I'm guessing it be, can be pretty daunting sometimes as you look at it and say, how do we get from where we want to be, you know, where we are now to where we want to be? Well, part of that is also, I mean, when first you have to convince the people that you can do it, you know, or that they want to do it, um, and this is, you know, again, having the advocates, having one of the biggest things that says always to have a good relationship with whoever the biggest decision maker is that you that you answer to you don't have to like them that's one of the things i don't think people understand you don't have to like somebody to have a good professional relationship with somebody um you know understand how to speak their language but you know i mean again tied into the goals that they want but you're right it's daunting the idea that we're going to have to close a branch for a year and everything's going to have to be moved over one good communication with the people that you're going to be inconveniencing Explain to your patrons why this is why you're doing this. Like when you come back, we're not going to have those crummy rugs that nobody likes. We're actually going to have working bathrooms. The Wi-Fi will work throughout the entire building. And in the meantime, we're moving everything over here. We've made sure that this stuff is online. We're, you know, we're we're going to try to partner with maybe the local coffee shops to run, you know, a story time so that parents aren't necessarily having to drive huge amounts of time to get to the, the resources that they want. Um, one thing that really, I will say, good leaders do is they understand how to make, how to build good partnerships, you know, in the community and, you know, things like working with the schools. This is one thing I've never understood. If you're a public library near schools, know the summer reading list. Don't wait until kids start asking for it. Find out what the summer reading lists are. Find out what the biggest, you know, the big assignments are for each for each grade, because you know that you're going to have the big history assignment. You know that AP has the AP classes have whatever. You should be talking with the people around you to know this. Get out of your library. That is one of the biggest things I would say. Get out of your building and go to people. Don't ask. Don't expect them to come to you. Go to them and talk to them about the services that you have, what you want to do. And I said, you know, as I said, when you have to do these, you have these big, big projects and they do seem daunting. What you have to do is say, okay, here is the end goal. 
here's the steps we have to take to get to it. So rather than thinking about this really scary big thing at the end, we have to get steps one through three done right now. And when that's done, we'll start looking at four to six. Or maybe when we finished up two, we start considering four to six. But, you know, understand that for all that it's a huge undertaking, that's part of the planning process is you, you, you come up with the, you know, the strategic plan. You come up with the five-year goal. You come up with what you're expecting to do at the end. If you just try to get to that end goal without thinking about everything that goes into it, you're never going to do it. That's why you have, um, you know, tactical plans. That's why you put together goals and objectives because you, you look at what you have to do and then you break it down into the steps. And you surround yourself with the right stakeholders and you know who the other side stakeholders are as well. Yes. I wanted to go back to something you said about the schools. I, I have a lot of behavioral conversations with, with library professionals and staff that talk about that, that golden hour between 2 p.m. and 5 p.m. when the students come in and run amok. And it's usually that sort of teenager, 12 to 15 years old, you know, they're, they're hypersensitive to being embarrassed and their, their peer pressure and all the other things that are going on. And like you said, if they're near a school and I always say, well, have you reached out to the principals and the vice principals and the counselors and even the school librarians, or have you reached out to the district and said, can we partner on good library behavior? Can we create something that goes home with the parents? Or can we create something where we can speak to the PTA or, or the school board to be sort of a partnership? And, and, you know, what I hear is that the school people say, well, you know, it's 205, they're your problem now. Uh, you know, we're, we're heading to the car and we're, we'll see and, and, and so we see them in the morning. And so the more realistic approach is this partnership, you know, a junior high, middle school with the local library that's right across the street and gets an influx of these kids. And I've even seen uh, something where a, a woman was telling me, she said, we took the sort of the most problematic students and we made them kind of student senators. We actually paid them. We got a grant and they turned out to be awesome because they could keep they could keep things, you know, under control, but they did it in a, in a, you know, useful, careful way. But they they did it in in sort of because the other shoe was on the other foot for them. And they go, oh, now we see the impact, and they were actually, you know, the, the part of the solution. So talk to me about that that need for library people, especially leadership level, to make better connections with the, especially middle school or high school if you're if it's near you if you're having student behavior problems. Yeah, well, I was gonna say, I mean, it's one thing to talk to the school, and like you said, I mean. One thing I'll say, teach, teachers are incredibly overwhelmed. So the idea that you come in like, I want to do more with you, they're going to be like, oh, dear God, I do not have the time for that. Um, and this is one thing where I would start small. I would go, you know, I, I would want to go to the teachers and say, okay, I know you don't have time for this, but can you just give me a list of the assignments for the semester? That way, when they come over, I'll know what you're you're asking them to do. And, you know, take take this is one where I would take the the burden off of them, like literally just email this to me. I'll do the other parts. If I have questions, I'll let you know. Um, you know, a lot of times you have to start small. You have to be like, let me just get, let me just get the collections of the summer readings. Let me just know what the big assignments are. I want to make sure if they, you know, if they're in there during that two to five time and they have questions, I know what they're talking about. Sure. Um, you know, and you know, again, talking to the, you know, talk to the school librarian and seeing like what resources don't you have that maybe we can make sure that we, that are available where we are to make sure that, you know, you're, you're not stepping on toes. You're, 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 um, I was going to say you're partnering, but you're actually supplementing what they're, what they do. And also you're open later than they are sure. and you're open on weekends, you know, so it's, it's, um, 
I was going to say it's ways to do that. The other and, thing and you may you have do, oh, just as much ahead. interaction with the parents yeah. on certain issues as the teachers do. You know, the parents maybe the teacher only sees the parents once or twice a year, whereas the in the library you may see that that parent of that child pretty regularly. Yeah, I was going to say yeah, and especially if you have good parent engagement, you know, whether or not I had you know, if I was in a public library where, especially, I would say, especially small areas, I would try to attend some PTO events just to like, so I could see what the concerns were. You know, it's, it's informing yourself and understanding, you know, I mean, again, it's being savvy, but it's also being willing to learn and listen more than anything, being willing to listen. What are the concerns that are coming up? What are the things that they want to see happening? And I think the other thing you pointed out, you kind of hit the nail on the head with, Sometimes the best people to collaborate with are the kids themselves. Sure. You know, I mean, I remember, oh, this was years and years ago, um, going to a library in Phoenix. It's the Burton Bar Branch, a very big branch. And they set up this absolutely gorgeous teen room. Like, I was jealous. Like, where was this teen room when I was a kid? And one of the things they did was actually ask the kids what they wanted. And, you know, they did things like there's a snack machine in the room. They have, you know, because it was, it's a room that they could close off. They could um, play movies all the time. They had the computers to do the homework. They had some books there, but that's not what the kids want. The kids wanted the space. Sure. And that, I mean, that's to me, one of the more important things. If you talk to, to kids and, you know, you get their suggestions and you say, okay, let's try this out. And if it doesn't work explain why it didn't work. Or if you can't do it, explain why you can't do it. Don't just be like, that's impossible. Be very upfront about why you can't do it. Um, but, you know, again, partnering with the kids gives them a sense of agency in what's going on. And they're going to be just, they're going to be some of your best advocates with their parents, with their teachers, because you're giving them a sense of responsibility in what they're doing, but you're also giving them a sense of, that they're being heard. And again, if any of us remember our teen years, if there's one thing we felt authority never listened to us. But I've seen that I've seen that play out over and over again. I have a friend who um, his first job out of his program was a teen librarian. This is somebody who hates kids, by the way. I don't say hates, just not his favorite group. He was wildly successful in the position because he would just ask the kids what they wanted. And they loved him. You know, well, what do you, what events do you want? Well, we want to run a, a talent show. Okay. He figured out how to put it together, worked with the kids that built it up. It was wildly successful. Is that always going to be the case? No, but there is something to, like I said, one of the biggest partners with some of that is actually partnering with the one, the people you're trying to help. So I wanted to go back to your book for a second. There was a, a chapter in there, which I, I thought was really interesting because it's a question I've been getting from some library leaders. It's about unions. And it's like, I, I hate to ask compound questions, but I'll ask you a compound question. How right. do we um, bring the best and the brightest into our our facilities as employees if it's not always about pay? And maybe one of the benefits of unions, and I just wrote a piece for Library 2.0 about this, which is going to come out in a couple of weeks, that there are pros and cons about unions. There is, there, you know, sometimes the the difficulty, the challenge with unions is you are not in the same sort of collegial relationship with your boss. Sometimes you have to go through the shop steward or some sort of memo of understanding about what we can or can't do. Whereas in the non-union environment, the boss would say, yes, we can do that. Or, no, we can't. But certainly the union environment sometimes absolutely raises wages and benefits because of the, the collective power of that. So kind of a compound question. How do you 
bring the brightest and best employees into the library world if pay is not the only driver. I know people work for more than just pay, but it's important. And then the second is what what's kind of your sense as you look at, you know, Starbucks unionizes and and you know um, the idea that that libraries are now seeing more union employees or at least union uh, activity. Yeah. Well, I mean, keep in mind that I'm actually in a part of the country unions are very big. Um, and again, a lot of libraries here have been unionized for decades, not just recently. And let me just uh, maybe start with how do you bring in the best and the brightest? Um, is understand what people, you know, when you're bringing people in, what are their priorities? I think sometimes one of the mistakes we make in the hiring process is we we see somebody, you know, we see somebody who's like us, Un usually unconsciously. I will say it's usually, like, oh, this seems to be a perfect fit, or this person seems to fit with the personality, but you haven't really found out what their plans are for five years out, 10 years out, and realizing that you don't have the growth that you, that they want, or perhaps you're expecting too much of them. And this is, I think, also a, a thing we have to recognize as managers and leaders. Sometimes people literally just want to be, I don't want to use the term yet, just. Sometimes the goal is to be a children's librarian for 20 years. Or a page. Yeah. And that's what they want to do. And you need to pay attention to that. You need to find ways to keep challenging them within that. But don't try to take them out of it. You know, let them thrive in what they do well. And you have other people who I will say I probably fall in this category that I'm like, oh, no, I'll be happy doing this for the next whatever. Yeah, I'm never not. I never am. I always end up wanting to do more and going, going someplace where I realize that after a year, I'm going to have no growth. I'm going to be gone because I'm not being challenged, you know, and it's, it's one recognizing what the possibilities are there. The other thing I'd say is also, you know, you want to bring in the best and the brightest. That doesn't mean that you always want to keep the best and the brightest. And what I mean by that is you want to bring somebody in for three years, you know, somebody that you think you're going to have for three years and they're probably going to have to move up. Fabulous. That means you have three years to work with them. That means you have three years to help to have them help really build the culture in the organization to help help you recognize other talent within the organization. Um, I actually had a conversation with somebody who is a rural library director and they're having a hard time getting an assistant director in. I said, have you thought about hiring people straight out of programs? I realize that, you know, that they may not have the experience, but they're going to have the degree. And you're probably going to have them from anywhere from about two to five years. But in that time, you're going to have them and train them and you're going to be able to do, kind of do the next steps. And it's a, a slightly different way of looking at it and that you're not necessarily, and don't get me wrong, you're going to have people who are going to be at libraries for over 20 years. But you also have to recognize that if somebody leaves, it's not a failure, especially if they're going on to bigger and better things, because that means you prepared them for the next step. Now, in terms of unions, I think one of the things, the important things with unions right now, and I would have answered this question differently 20 years ago and maybe even 15 years ago, um, is that unions are going to one protect positions and they're going to make sure that what the what the expectations of labor are. And I'm to me, why that's so important is as you know, as people keep cutting, you know, cutting budgets and trying to well, you know, you can just take on more work. Well, no, you shouldn't, you know, if you were hired to be the reference librarian, um, and by the way, this is not a knock on pages, but you're wasting money if you're asking them to pay to to be a page, because that's not what you hired them for. You know, and it's 
one of the things that unions will do will say, no, that's not part of their job. And they will also, you know, again, step in and guarantee benefits. And yes, you no matter what, you're going to have always have that that tension between the union and administration. And that's how it should be, because each side, you know, wants to see what's best with that. Um, and yeah, sometimes it adds layers of bureaucracy about things that you can and can't do. But at the same time, it makes sure that you're not being told to take on three jobs when you were hired for one. Sure. So uh, in, in wrapping up, I know you're at Simmons University. Is that the best way for folks to get a hold of you? Yes. Yes, it is. You can actually find me on the website because my my email is lisa.hussey2 at simmons.edu. But seriously, go to the website. Okay. <laughs> find me that way. It's usually the best way. And yes, email is always a great way to, to reach me. And I'm always happy to get questions. Please do not think I'm being facetious about that. I actually am always happy to get questions about anything I've said here, anything in the book. Maybe you go and see my Vita and like, oh, I have a question. I didn't have a question about management, but what about your other research? I love that. And also just as a a, a word to the wide, wise for listeners, researchers, we love it when you want to talk about our research. We're so happy about that. Please don't ever think you're bothering us. So your book is Library Management 101, A Practical Guide. The second edition is done by Roman and Littlefield. You can find more at the book at roman.com, and it's also on amazon.com. Dr. Hussey, thanks for your time and and your expertise today. I appreciate what you've done for the Library 2.0 audience. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed it very much.